Republicans in the House Freedom Caucus said this week that they were ready to support an amended health care bill that would repeal and replace the Affordable Care Act. A month ago, it was this same group of conservatives who sank the GOP effort, to the dismay of Speaker Paul Ryan and President Donald Trump. But Ryan, who had hoped to get a quick vote on the deal and secure a big win for Trump on his 100th day in office, is still struggling to convince enough skeptics in his caucus. And still more revisions to the bill are expected. I'm Sean Zeller, and this is CQ Roll Call's Week Ahead podcast. In the studio with me, steps from the White House, is Rebecca Adams, CQ's healthcare editor, who's tracking the minute-to-minute developments on this new GOP plan. Welcome, Rebecca. Thank you, Sean. So, Rebecca, what got the Freedom Caucus on board? As you mentioned, the House Freedom Caucus came out in support of this new amendment that the caucus chairman co-authored with moderate Tom MacArthur. He's a Republican from New Jersey. Their other moderates in the House made it clear that MacArthur was working on his own and not necessarily representing the entire group of moderates. And this amendment would allow states to get waivers exempting them from consumer protections in the 2010 health care bill under certain conditions. Those protections include the minimum health benefits that insurers have to cover and a ban on charging people more for coverage if they have health conditions. So how does this change the dynamics in the House? So before, the conservatives were the folks who were blamed for holding up this health care bill, and that shifted this week. What we're seeing now, in some sense, is kind of a, a blame game. Now it's the moderates who are holding this up. And it's pretty interesting. We're, we have seen um, the House Freedom Caucus come out in a unified position saying that they support this bill. People are looking at it very carefully, trying to discern exactly what the impact would be. So you mentioned some of the regulations that states might seek to waive. Uh, what's the, what are the most important ones? So the most important ones are that states would be able to charge people with health problems more if they had um, experienced a coverage gap of 63 days or more, and if the state had a program for sick people, such as a program that covers some of the cost of those really expensive patients. And the coverage, the higher coverage costs could last for the year that these people are covered. And those waivers would be available for 10 years, which is a pretty long time, or longer if they're extended. What's interesting about this process is that under the amendment, states would get the waivers automatically approved unless the Department of Health and Human Services denies them or asks for more information within 60 days. And states could get extensions unless HHS act within 90 days. So it's a very easy approval process if states want this. And so this means that certain people would pay a lot more for their insurance than they do under the current Obamacare system? Under those conditions, that is certainly possible. So if you have a pre-existing condition, for example, the insurer could charge you a lot more given that you have higher health care costs. Yes, and that was one of the things that the 2010 Democrats' health care bill protected against was um, the 2010 health care bill said that insurance companies could no longer deny people coverage for their pre-existing conditions and they could not charge people more for their health status. So, Rebecca, during the campaign, President Trump promised not to take away the Obamacare rule that says insurers cannot deny coverage to people with pre-existing conditions. But if this plan would allow states to permit insurers to charge a lot more, isn't that effectively the same thing? It is very similar 
what what we're seeing is that under certain conditions, like if a state had a program in place that was supposed to help with the cost of high cost patients, then they could put forward this waiver, and even though they would technically be keeping the promise that you that insurers could not deny coverage to people with pre existing conditions or health conditions. Effectively, people would be priced out of the market in some places, potentially, because insurance companies could charge them more, and people, not everyone, would be able to afford that. What about essential health benefits? You mentioned those. These are things like uh, coverage for maternity care or coverage for hospitalization. If states waive that requirement that insurers cover those things, people could find themselves in plans where they're taken to the hospital and it's not covered? States could make the decision to waive entire categories of these benefits, and there are 10 central categories. They include hospitalization, doctor's care, drug coverage, maternity care, mental health coverage, all of those sort of things. So states could decide, we're just not going to cover prescription drugs. Done. We're not doing it. Or they could say, within prescription drugs, we're going to give insurance companies a lot more flexibility. They could do either of those things. And what Obamacare had done was set up these rules. And and the rules at the time actually did have some flexibility for states to make decisions on this. The rules put in, in place some minimum guidelines of what plans had to cover. And if states pursued these waivers, then there would be fewer guidelines. So you could have a system under this proposal where there are essentially two tiers of health care coverage, depending on where you live and what state you live? Yes. And do we have any sense of whether states are itching to take advantage of this, would exercise the waiver? There are a few conservative states that have looked at this, and there are certainly interest groups that are interested in seeing this happen. You might see the website eHealth. So their CEO is in talking to us this week about why he thinks it's a good idea to allow more flexibility on these essential health benefits. And insurance companies are eager to get more flexibility. They don't necessarily want to cover all of these different types of services. And if they can structure the care the way they want to, then the insurance companies might be able to attract healthier people. On the interest group piece, um, I noticed the American Medical Association, the very powerful lobby for doctors in the United States, came out against this deal today. Um, Where are other interest groups on it, and how could they play a role in the debate? Well, you're absolutely right. The doctors did come out and say that, and the American Hospital Association also reiterated that they do not support the underlying bill. Um, The American Medical Association said that this could make coverage completely unaffordable to people with pre-existing conditions. On the other hand, this week we also saw the conservative interest groups, Club for Growth, for example, and the Heritage Foundation, come forward and say, while this is not complete repeal of Obamacare like we wanted, we think that we are now able to support this bill. Now, the, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, which is a nonpartisan agency that evaluates what legislation is going to do, in March said that the Republican bill was going to cost 24 million people their insurance over the course of 10 years and that it was going to save $150 billion. Have they rendered a verdict on what this amendment would do? They have not, and that is a big issue because um, the CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, 
plays an important role in explaining what the cost and benefits of different pieces of legislation would be. The CBO is not always entirely correct, but they are they are among the best estimators of this sort of legislation. And so the House members possibly could be voting on something without having that kind of information. So getting this through the House is step one. Getting it through the Senate is step two, of course. And back in March, you had a number of Republican senators in states that had used Obamacare's provision allowing them to expand Medicaid um, complain that the Republican House bill was going to squelch that, was going to be a problem for them. Is that is that issue still out there, the Medicaid issue? That issue is still out there. Other issues are still out there. Remember that Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell of Kentucky, he only has those 52 votes in the Senate. It's very hard to get legislation through, especially really complex legislation like that, which is why they're using the shortcut process that they have decided to use, this budget process, which allows them to get it through with only a majority. But those concerns still remain. You see people like Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska expressing deep concerns about the bill on one end of the spectrum. And you see on the other end, folks, conservatives like Ted Cruz and Rand Paul being concerned on the other end of the spectrum and saying that they want more far-reaching changes than what we're seeing in the House version. So if the Senate gets to this, they could pass something entirely differently and force a reconciliation between two pieces of legislation. They could. It could die in the Senate, or they could pass something completely different. And if they did, it's unclear whether that could get through the House. Has Donald Trump gotten involved this time around? <laughs> he's he's always uh, talking and tweeting and, and that sort of thing. Um, and uh, Vice President Mike Pence has been actively involved in the negotiations. They're eager to get a big legislative victory, which they've lacked during the first 100 days. So is that the reason for this kind of flurry of activity? That is a primary driver behind this. All right. Thank you, Rebecca, for coming in. Thank you. I'm Sean Zeller. Thank you for joining us. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and on NPR One.